Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. I turn on my computer. I go online. Welcome. Welcome. And my breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. It's film stories. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies. Movies that have stories. And the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. Stories. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, that's absolutely everything you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, well, I'm here to talk, as the title suggests, the stories of films. And I tend to talk about development stories, production stories, marketing stories, release stories, all the ingredients, really, that go towards making the films that we know and sometimes love. Just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. The films I tend to cover on this podcast, well, they have more of a mainstream leaning to them than anything else. They're films I'm interested in or invested in to some degree. I try not to do snark. I try not to punch down. This podcast is a celebration of cinema and a real appreciation that it's really hard to get a film made. So I'm very, very glad that people somehow manage to do it. Each episode, I cover two different movies, and I'm going to get on with the first of them right now. What I'm going to do, I'm going to set it all up with a clip from the trailer, and then I'll come to the story of this one. The other side of this. He got that fish yet? Hmm? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did. It's a happy ending. Not exactly. The old man met his greatest adversary just when he thought that part of his life was over. Why didn't he just let the fish go? Old man's got to be the old man. Fish has got to be the fish. Got to be who you are in this world, right? No matter what. Yo, Pop, bet you didn't have to push no dollies at your old job, did you? Guilty as charged. Can you do a refund for me when you're done? Open the register up right now. Move. Give me that ring. No, it was my mother. Please. It's okay, Jenny. What's she knowing about? It is about a guy who's a knight in shining armor, except he lives in a world where knights don't exist anymore. My ring. And that's a clip from 2014's The Equaliser, directed by Antoine Fuqua, written by Richard Wenk, based on the television series of the same name, and starring Denzel Washington, Chloe Grace Moretz, David Harbour, Bill Pullman and Melissa Leo. So the television series of The Equaliser was a hugely popular one. It ran from 1985 to 1989 and starred Edward Woodward in the lead role. There is a terrible, very childish joke which asks why did Edward Woodward have so many D's in his name because otherwise he'd be known as Iwa Wuwa. And just for me telling that joke, I'll be sending you all individually a written letter of a apology uh, honestly so the idea of doing a film version of the equalizer well when hollywood was hitting the 2000s bringing tv shows to the big screen was deemed a good plan i mean the charlie's angels movie had for instance done good business directed by mcgee the sequel didn't do quite so well but nonetheless it meant that studios were just snooping around the television schedules of the 70s and 80s to see what they could find And the first sign that we were getting a modern reboot of The Equaliser came at the end of 2005, when the company that owned by convicted rapist Harvey Weinstein, the Weinstein Company, revealed at that stage that it had bought the rights for a film version of The Equaliser, and it had installed a trio of producers as well, Mace Newfeld, Tony Eldridge and Michael Sloan. And they were on board with a view of developing it. There wasn't a director, there wasn't a cast at that stage, there certainly wasn't a script there was just the announcement that the project existed and it was in development at the Weinstein company 
Didn't take long, though, before names started to become attached. Um, Paul McGuigan is a British director. Gangster Number no. 1 is one of his films. And uh, Lucky Number no. 7 had been a, a, a little bit of a hit as well. He would go on to direct the first episode of the TV series Sherlock, amongst many, many other things. I mean, he did the film of Victor Frankenstein as well. And he was linked to the idea of the, the Equaliser for a while, as were a pair of writers, Terrell Lee Lankford and Michael Connolly. But the project languished, really, without getting a green light. And most of the producers fell away. Paul McGuigan fell away. The writers fell away. And in the end of the personnel that the Weinstein Company recruited to the project, it was just Mace Newfeld who was left, as it sought, in the end, a fresh home. So move on to 2010, and at this stage, there was fresh momentum behind the idea. I mean, we're at a point now where the A-Team movie was uh, got a reasonable budget of 20th Century Fox, and that was on the eve of release. And also Russell Crowe was uh, in, uh, the kind of movie star who could get a project off the ground. He was just about to start in Robin Hood for Ridley Scott. That was about to be released. 310 to Yuma. I mean, that's well worth seeking out, actually, if you've not already. And the LA Times reported in June of 2010 that Crowe had indeed signed up for the lead role in The Equaliser. And it wasn't just going to be him involved because the film at that stage was in a queue in Crowe's schedule behind his next project which was The Next Three Days, a thriller that he was making with Crash director, not that one, Paul Haggis. And at that stage, Mace Newfeld was still trying to package together the Equaliser film, even though it didn't have, uh, it didn't have a studio attached to it. There was still no script that they could work with. And then there was a degree of wariness in the end when the A-Team movie came along and didn't do big bucks at the box office. So even though Russell Crowe's name was giving it some cachet, it wasn't necessarily on the starting blocks with, with with much venom behind it. Now, Paul Haggis, that notwithstanding, he would come aboard with a view of writing, potentially directing. And in September 2010, we got the announcement that he was in talks for the film. Now, also among the other producers involved at that point was Todd Black, who would, I mean, he would see the project through as well. And he'd worked with Denzel Washington on a number of projects, not least one of his directorial uh, efforts, Antoine Fisher. And he explained to Screen Rant about the, really the migration of this going from a Russell Crowe headline project to a Denzel Washington film. And he talked about how the more internally in our office we were developing the film with the writer, it didn't feel like Russell that it didn't feel like a Russell Crowe movie. Now, that writer would be Richard Wenk, who had penned... Well, he was penning the Expendables sequel. Um, that had come out in 2012. And he'd been hired onto The Equaliser. And as Todd Black said, I literally had a lunch scheduled with Denzel, I think, like the next day. And I said to the writer and to my partner, it really is Denzel. It's more Denzel than anybody. And he described that as a light bulb moment that he suddenly saw the film in a very different way. And so he had a conversation with a colleague and they noted that Washington was on the lookout for a franchise at this point. And so um, he just said, as, as Todd Black explained, he's a friend of mine that I work with for a long time. And he said, I think maybe I have a franchise for you that's not written yet. But if you're interested, I'd like to have the writer write it for you. And so he explained to Washington that this was the equaliser. Washington said, I never saw it. Um, he knew it was a TV show, but didn't know an awful lot beyond that. He didn't know the Edward Woodward joke either. And that Washington was like, well, yeah, make the, make the script great and I'll come in. That was the deal. There was sufficient interest in it that at the very least he'd take a look at the project. And meanwhile, Mace Newfeld was setting it up with an independent production outfit by the name of Escape Artists. And Escape Artists had been involved with some high profile films to that stage. And it also had an ongoing deal with Sony Pictures that it was working to. Now, come the end of 2011, Sony was so happy with the deal that it re-upped it, re it for a further three years. And that gave Escape Artists a place on the Sony lot. And with Escape Artists now also developing The Equaliser, 
Pixel, well, that also brought the project onto Sony's radar as well. Now, quite when the moment that Russell Crowe dropped out and Denzel Washington came in happened isn't entirely clear, but Crowe was certainly moving away from the film. His Robin Hood film hadn't gone down particularly well. We got the official announcement at the end of 2011 that it was indeed Richard Wenk who'd been hired to write the script, but also we got the announcement at that stage that Washington was now headlining the film. However, just to get to that point, there was eight months of work between the producers and Richard Wenk to tailor that script for Washington. And as Todd Black again explained, once that happened, we gave it to him on June the 30th and it didn't take long for Washington to read the script and get back to him. So this was in 2012. And so uh, he got the script on June the 30th. He got a phone call, did Todd Black, on July the 3rd of uh, of that year at 2.30 in the afternoon, Black explained. And he said at that point we were off because it was the July the 4th holiday weekend. It was on a Tuesday. And I said to Denzel, how are you? And he goes, I'm Robert McCall. How are you? So I don't know how familiar you are with The Equaliser, but Robert McCall is the central character in it. Washington was in. And this then accelerated still further. Remember, by this point, it, it had been on the cooker in various places for five, six years. But then Todd Black was off to see Amy Pascal, who was heading up Sony Pictures the day after. Uh, he went along, he presented her, it was supposed to be a social gathering, but he presented her with the script and said that Denzel Washington has agreed to star... And within 24 hours, Amy Pascal had come in with confirmation that, yes, Sony was going to do this. And so July 2012, the hunt was then on for a director. And this was slightly trickier because several names were being floated around, not all of whom met with the producers in the end. There was Nicholas Windin Refin off the back of the film Drive. He was certainly very much on their radar. Off the back of The Raid, meanwhile, there was Gareth Evans. Uh, Gavin O'Connor had made Warrior and that had impressed. Pierre Morel as well, thanks to the first Taken film. And a conversation then definitely happened with Nicholas Winding Refn. That one was utterly confirmed by producer Todd Blatt. But the problem was, where, as much as they, they loved the film Drive, Winding Refn saw the equaliser in a very different way to the producers. And so they shook hands and walked away. And the next person through the door was Rupert Wyatt. Now, Wyatt, director of Rise of the Planet of the Apes, he also came in. They they got on really, really well. Um, but again, Wyatt saw the film slightly differently. And so a deal couldn't be done, although there was an intent there that they would go on and work with him on a different project. But Sony at this stage was fast tracking the project as well, that it got Denzel Washington. It had got He'd signed up off the back of the screenplay that Wenk had been working really hard on. And Sony was also keen to start shooting the film as soon as April 2013. It had a location in Boston, a Boston location film earmarked with a budget of around $50 million, of which $20 million was going to go to Washington. But that seemed like a sound investment for the studio. Studio, as much as the 2010s were hardly driven by movie star box office, Washington had nonetheless, just, just a little while before, headlined what turned out to be a very tidy, profitable action thriller by the name of Safe House, which is a fine film as well. And so they, they just seemed like a sound investment. And also it was clear very much from the off that it wasn't just Denzel Washington who was interested in a franchise. Surpri unsurprisingly, the studio quite liked that idea as well. But it would still take quite a lot of time for a director to be uh, to, to be appointed that we'd gone from the summer of 2012, a planned start date in April 2013. And yet it wasn't until March 2013 that we got the formal announcement that Sony had finally found its man with the announcement that Antoine Fuqua would be reuniting with Denzel Washington for the film. Now, the pair had originally collaborated on the movie Training Day, which had won Washington one of his Oscars. And that was a real breakthrough uh, film for Antoine Fuqua. And I've asked him about this and he talked about how Denzel Washington really trusted him when he was effectively a novice film director at that point. And the pair had plans to work again and indeed would go on to work again. Uh, Fuqua at this point had struck box office gold too. He was just, well, he's about to. He's finishing up the film Olympus Has Fallen starring Gerard Butler. And that itself would spark a franchise as well. 
and so he was on board the start date was now looking a little bit delayed it wasn't going to get going in april 2013 but sony was still moving it fast this was still going to be shooting by the summer and so with fuqua on board a script on board washington on board uh in may 2023 in came the supporting cast melissa leo for instance she signed up and as did chloe grace moretz now, the character that Moretz plays in the film was originally written as a 20-something, and at this stage, Moretz was heading towards her later teens. But Amy Pascal put her name forward that they'd signed her up to work with on the remake of Carrie, so they had a professional relationship with Chloe Grace Moretz, and her name was put forward for The Equaliser, and so they brought her in. And she read with Denzel Washington, and it clicked. Fuqua was impressed. Washington was impressed. Sony, of course, was impressed because that's where the recommendation had come from. And so she got the role and the script was adapted and rewritten accordingly to accommodate the fact that one of the key characters was now several years younger. Sony also offered to Antoine Fuqua the chance to shoot the movie elsewhere. So even though it had earmarked Boston and work pre-production work had been done and locations had been scouted in Boston, um, it offered him the chance to shoot it in New York or Pittsburgh. But Fuqua was really taken with Boston. It just felt like the right setting for him. And as it would happen, the, uh, the I mean, the film would shoot on location there with production finally kicking off in June of 2013. Now, my old colleague Ryan Lambie inter interviewed Antoine Fuqua extensively about this back in our Den of Geek days. And he, I mean, the pair of them talked about working with Washington to develop this lead character uh, to make Robert McCall a slightly different action movie lead, adding an element of OCD to him. Now, this wasn't originally scripted by Richard Wang. And what happened is Fuqua and Washington were just talking and they just worked this character out. Uh, that Washington said, I'm going to shave my head. The character should be low maintenance. Fuqua liked that idea. He hugely admired uh, uh, one particular characteristic of Denzel Washington, that he just sees stuff. All of a sudden, he developed this guy, a guy who doesn't sleep at night, which means he has some issues he's not dealing with. He's real quiet, but completely compassionate, and he wants to help people. And it's it's one of the many uh, really interesting Twitter threads that Ed Zwick has put out. Talks about the process of working with Washington, that Washington would look at a script, uh, oftentimes cross out loads of lines of dialogue and just say, I can act that. And this was part of the process as well, that Washington would, would be doing large chunks of this character non-verbally. He would also be doing a fair amount of it in a DIY store as well. Uh, I don't want to spoil exactly where, where, where this goes, but the vast majority would be location shooting. Uh, Fuqua was very keen as well that when shooting the movie, he didn't want to he didn't want it all to over explain. He was keen too to have shots that actually showed what was going on to take away a page of exposition or a whole chunk of dialogue. He wanted to slim things down as much as he could, uh, even though the running time came in at just over two hours. He wanted to cut away from almost like the unnecessary administration uh, and explanatory stuff that a film can often get just get bogged down him he did bring in experts to help with the action sequences because action is key this was going to be a very bloody and brutal film there was no way the equalizer was going to come in as pg-13 the lower budget protected that the fact that this was a 50 million dollar film meant that they had the scope to not target a big family audience and Fuqua said he brought in experts to help and he just said i just talked to these guys i gave them scenarios and showed them the scene and he said, these guys do this thing all the time. People like you and me, we look around for the most comfortable chair and whatever's best for us. They come in, he said, are the fight experts, and they're already looking at how to exit if something happens, what they'd use. Their mind works differently than ours. And he was, he was just drilling this level of expertise right into the core of the film. Production wrapped up and Sony had earmarked a release date in September of 2014 for in the end for the film. It had appointed Harry Gregson Williams to come in and do the music for it. And then it was a case of just ramping up the publicity and working out when to debut it. So we got the first picture from the from the film, uh, for instance, in December of 2013. And that was back when Sony was looking to release it on in April of 2013. 2014 um, that was ultimately delayed uh, and in the end the trailer wasn't even released until May of 2014 
And th th what the studio decided to do, um, unusual for a big action movie, was to debut it at a film festival that it staged the premiere of The Equaliser at the 2014 Toronto International Film Festival. It was seen at that festival on September the 7th, 2014, ahead of its broader US release, which was due three weeks later on. Now, the response when it went before critics, well, the reception to it was was, was good, really. The things that reviewers were particularly picking up on was, well, Washington's fine leading role. That was a start. Um, the fact that the action and the bloodiness of it kind of worked particularly well, even though as much as it was stylishly violent, a lot of what it was actually doing was relatively conventional. But an entertaining film, one not skewed at a younger audience as well. And I think that probably worked in its in its favour in the end. And the film would head into cinemas with some positive poster quotes uh, ready and plastered on the publicity. The publicity tour too, I should note, very much openly raised the idea that everyone concerned was looking for a sequel. And in fact, at the point the Equaliser was heading out into the world, Antoine Fuqua and Denzel Washington were already preparing their next project together, a remake of the classic Western, The Magnificent Seven. And they both wanted to do a Western. They were committed to this. They were in prep on that one. And they were also both talking in press junkets for The Equaliser that they were very open to the idea of the Equaliser 2. Now, there was one press story just before the film went into cinemas here in the UK as to... Uh, well, it just kind of counted just a little bit against it because the violence of the Equaliser was such that the British Board of Film Classification was looking to give this an 18 certificate over here. And 18 certificate is obviously quite restrictive and Sony Pictures wanted in the UK a 15 now, we've seen this kind of thing before in the UK. I mean, there was a trend for it going at the time that um, A Good Day to Die Hard, for instance, was a 20th Century Fox wanted to put that out with a 12A and so made cuts accordingly. The Taken sequels as, uh, as well, they were cut back in the UK. In the case of The Equaliser, Sony did in the end trim the movie back so it would get a 15 certificate rather than the 18 and thus it was cut for its UK release. But still, in the US at least, when the film came out, I mean, it was a solid hit and a very fast and solid hit that it opened the weekend of September the 26th to the 28th very firmly in first place with a box office gross of $34 million. Now, that's not Marvel numbers, of course, but when the budget in the end had crept to what, about 50, somewhere between 55 and $70 million, it was still a good return at that point the it knocked the previous week's top film the maze runner off the top of the chart that was sitting in second place with 17 million the other opener that week was the box trolls uh 17 million dollars for Leica's excellent uh, animated feature that was good enough to put the film in third place. Other movies around in the top ten. Uh, a Walk Among the Tombstones starring Liam Neeson. You'd imagine that was going for a similar audience to The Equaliser. That was on its second week and already down to seventh place. Guardians of the Galaxy, the original, that had been around for just over two months. was still in eighth place. The comedy Let's Be Cops, anyone remember that? Well, as much as it's not loved, that was in ninth place. I've been hanging around for nearly two months with nearly 80 million in the bank. And the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles reboot was hanging in in 10th place. That at that stage had 187 million. The thing with the Equaliser, well, it was off the top of the chart the following week because unusually another adult skewing major studio release came along and this one came from Fox. It was Gone Girl, uh, directed by David Fincher. That opened in first place, knocked the Equaliser down to third because uh, Annabelle also opened that that week and both Annabelle and Gone Girl helped themselves to $37 million but the Equaliser was still bumbling along uh, more than bumbling along I mean it stayed in the top 10 grossing $9.7 on its third week even as films like Dracula Untold The Judge Alexander and The Terrible Horrible No Good Very Bad Day they were out and it was it was it took a little while before the Equaliser finally dropped out the top 10 in the US it had a good month in there and by the time it left US cinemas it had just crept over the 100 million mark 101 million dollars overseas outside of the us it had added another 90 million dollars so there we had it 192 million before it went to home formats and ultimately streaming where it would also clean up now this was more than enough 
to warrant the idea of getting the equaliser two going and so work was i mean work was going on that already at the point of release in fact sony had announced on uh, february 2014 so that's what six seven months before the equaliser was released that richard wenk was already writing a script for it and it was in april of 2015 some seven eight months after the release of the first movie that sony confirmed we were indeed going to get an equaliser two that would land in the summer of 2018 that too would be a hit film and at the point this podcast is being recorded uh, the equaliser three again directed by antoine fuqua um, is heading towards release it's due for release in september 2023 and Denzel Washington was on the lookout for a franchise. Turned out he found one. All he had to do was look out for a television series that he didn't particularly know, uh, have a tenacious producer or two who was willing to shape the material for him and work with a director with whom he's now worked several, several times and uh, find just a character and a franchise and a willingness to go to far more violent places than many franchises of its ilk will go. And what do you know? You've got yourself a box set. All that it leaves me to do on this particular production is to ask the very obvious question, what do you call a man with three trees in his garden? To which the answer is obviously Edward Woodward. And that in turn leads to the logical query of what do you call a man with four trees in his garden? To which the answer is I don't know, but Edward Woodward would. A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM. For a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. And that brings me to the halfway point of this latest episode of Film Stories. Thank you so much more than usual for tolerating it. I promise no more jokes. Um, if you like this podcast, I'm just going to do my parish notices now, um, and, and you don't mind supporting it, there are three ways you can do so, each of which is hugely appreciated. Um, you can subscribe to the podcast, and that I mean costs you absolutely nothing and hugely helps independent podcasts like this. If you find go to your podcast home of choice, just hit the subscribe button. While you're there, if you can also leave ideally a hugely positive review, that is much, much appreciated. Um, if you're happy to financially support what we're doing and want ad-free versions of this podcast, and if you want to get the podcast early pretty much every week, if you go to patreon.com slash Simon Brew, you can find I mean all the details are there, and also that's where you get the early gossip on what we're up to so uh, i can now say that a, a podcast special as patreon chums have known for a while has been recorded with longtime martin scorsese producer barbara defina and that's going to be coming your way shortly as well as a bunch of other specials that are currently in the works uh, I also publish Film Stories magazine and Film Junior magazines. Both of those you can pick up at store.filmstories.co.uk. And at the point this podcast has been recorded, I'm on the eve of another live show that I'm heading to Stockport for the first time here in the UK on May the 3rd, 2023. My Movie Geek live show will be taking place at the brilliant Light Cinema there. If you're interested in coming along and want ticket details, if you go to filmstories.co.uk, click on the Live Events tab at the top of the page, and that's where you'll find where, or where I'm going to be playing and how you can get hold of tickets. But I think that's enough parish notices. It's certainly enough jokes as well. Let's move on to the second of the two films I'm talking about in this episode of Film Stories. Not done a rom-com for a little while. Let's do one of those. Here's a clip from the trailer. Come to the story the other side of this in a city where everyone's looking for someone joe and kathleen have discovered the best way to meet someone <gasps> Hi. is to never meet at all you just email it's really nothing i don't know his name or what he does look, 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 look. or where he lives exactly what 
couldn't possibly be the rooftop killer. What they don't realize. What is that? What are you doing? You're taking all the caviar? That caviar is a garnish. Is they already have. Just Joe Fox, I'm in the book business. I am in the book business. What should I have said to a man who has made my professional life in misery? Tell me something, really. How do you sleep at night? Fight. Fight to the death. In life, they're at odds. She's beautiful, but... She's a pill. Online, they're in love. Do you think we should meet? Meet? Crikey, just imagine if they remade this film today in like the Tinder era. This is 1998's You've Got Mail, directed by Nora Ephron, starring Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, Parker Posey, Gene Stapleton, Dave Chappelle, Steve, uh, Steve Zane, Dabney Coleman and Greg Kinnear, with Nora Ephron and Delia Ephron penning the screenplay. Now, I don't think it's a massive spoiler to reveal uh, that You've Got Mail turned into a hit romantic comedy in 1998. But the roots of this 1998 hit rom-com actually lie all the way back to a European, uh, a European play from 1936. That would be a play by Miklos Laszlo called Parfumery. And this was the story of a pair of people working in a shop in Budapest who keep arguing but are also secretly pen pals. Now, this play would be the foundation for a couple of films as well before You've Got Mail came along. Most notably, the highest profile was 1940's The Shop Around the Corner, which starred Jimmy Stewart. And there was a musical actually as well in 1949 called The Good Old Summertime that used the same source material. But it was the 1940 movie, The Shop Around the Corner, that was the one that stuck. And not least for a producer by the name of Julie Dirk, because it was in 1992 that she was watching the film and she thought, well, this is ripe for a remake. The, the material hadn't on the big screen at least been touched for five decades and the, con the context of it all had changed dramatically. So the next conversation that Julie Dirk had was with producer Lauren Shuler Donner, a prolific producer, of course, who took on the rights to the shop around the corner and to that uh, and basically to the source material as well, uh, picked up the rights to the picture from Turner Pictures. And then they kind of sat there and like worked out, well, how can we do it? How can we freshen this and how can we modernize it? I didn't have to wait too long either because a year or two later, the World Wide Web was open to the general public and Internet take-up as we know it today was starting. Well, it was in its infancy, but it was becoming a thing. And the, the thought was perhaps this then could be an email movie. Perhaps that could be the mechanism by which the two lead characters are pen pals. And so Steve Prigger's book, uh, Movie Moguls Speak, Lauren Shula Donna talked in there about how she'd already, I mean, she was an early adopter of a lot of internet technology. She'd got experience going online and exploring chat rooms. And so this just all seemed to kind of glue together and they had a way into a new telling of the story. So then it's like, well, who do you get to actually do it? Because Ernst Lubitsch was the director of the shop around the corner and regarded as one of the finest directors of romantic comedies in the history of cinema. And Donna knew that she needed someone of that weight and of that expertise. And so perhaps inevitably it was Nora Ephron's name that came up. Now, Efron's big hit movies of the 10 years prior to this were writing the screenplay to When Harry Met Sally and writing and directing Sleepless in Seattle in 1993, starring, of course, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Um, as Meg Ryan would tell Vanity Fair in uh, in in a look back piece uh, going back over the film, Nora Ephron too was an early adopt early adopter of technology. That she was she had a massive computer way before everyone else. Uh, in contrast, actually, to the eventual co-star of You've Got Mail, Meg Ryan, who would tell Vanity Fair that she actually got her first computer when she did this particular film. So what happened then was Donna reached out to Nora Ephron and Nora Ephron was interested and brought in her sister, Delia Ephron, and the pair of them got to work on a screenplay. And what they did is they, they looked around at this as a New York story, that the pair of them lived in New York and there was also a kind of corporate uh, a corporate battle going on between the major American bookstore, Barnes & Noble, and also Borders as well. And these big chains were putting independent bookstores 
out of business. And so they decided that that was a useful ingredient for the story that they wanted to tell. Then they tuned it still further that the independent bookstore in their screenplay was going to be a children's bookstore as well. And Nora Ephron explained on the DVD commentary for the film, this was something that was very important to us, that it was a proper children's bookstore, that there'd be first editions of old children's books. It's part of what makes this a serious bookstore. And Efron explained, we wanted to sell the idea that this was a place that really cared about the history of children's literature, as opposed to the big chain bookstore that was going to be the other component in the film. Now, they had a concern. Once they'd settled on the idea of making this an email story, they realised, I mean, we weren't doing smartphones and laptops at that point. If you were sending email, you generally had to sit in front of a computer with a great big whacking screen in front of you. And that didn't really look like good cinema. And so there was a real concern very early on that they didn't want lots and lots of sequences of movie stars looking at massive monitors and sending correspondence back to each other. And they, they worked on this a lot um, and, and Donna and the Efrons, that sounds like a band doesn't it, were exploring different ways of getting across the emails on a screen so they could for instance have people reading aloud what they were typing, they could do voiceovers while they were walking around and they used a mix of ingredients really just to try and shake it all up because Nora Ephron decided very early on that she wanted her lead characters to be on computers as little as possible. In fact, the Ephrons saw it to a degree as a follow-up to their 1993 hit Sleepless in Seattle. And that also informed the casting that Nora Ephron had uh, constantly had Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan in mind for potentially another project. And as, as Efron explained, long before we started to remake The Shop Around the Corner, I'd been saying that Tom Hanks is as close as there is to Jimmy Stewart. And of course, then he was offered the role that Jimmy Stewart had played in the 1940 movie. And Efron added that Tom has such charm. He's so irresistible that he can play a bad guy. And you never once believe that he doesn't truly have a heart. And she went on, I think Tom and Meg share something, which is that men and women love them in equal amounts. So the offers went out to uh, Ryan and to Hanks, and both of them were keen to reunite with Nora Ephron. Julie signed on the dotted line, and this project was now starting to come together with some degree of pace to it. Now, uh, common to Nora Ephron's films, the supporting cast was uh, was hugely important as well. So Dave Chappelle, contentious figure these days, at this point he was he was I mean exploring more and more acting roles, and he'd originally been in line for a part in a previous Tom Hanks movie that would be Forrest Gump that he was offered the role of Bubba in that film but he turned it down reportedly fearing that Forrest Gump was going to be a box office failure as opposed to one of well one of the biggest films of the 1990s and a multiple Oscar winner um, however Hanks bore him in mind for future projects and apparently it was Hanks who suggested him to Nora Ephron as a, a, an ideal person for one of the supporting roles in You've Got Mail Dabney Coleman got one as well and he walked into the audition for the film basically having no idea about computer technology and such like and made precious little effort to hide it um, it worked because he was cast as Tom Hanks's father in the movie and Parker Posey had been bubbling up in a whole series of independent films she hadn't been doing that many big Hollywood things so it was a bit of a deal really that Posey would sign up for this but she duly did Greg Kinnear had moved across from talk show host to acting in the 1995 movie Sabrina starring uh, Julia Ormond and Harrison Ford and he landed a key supporting role here as did Heather Burns and in an unexpected, perhaps, but surprise, a nice piece of casting, Monty Python alumnus uh, Michael Palin uh, signed up to do a week's work on the film in a supporting role. So the cast was coming together. There was a screenplay. There was a director. And there was the plan to shoot in and around New York to, is the old cliche, make, new, make the environment, make the city almost one of the characters in the film. Now, the producers did ask the Barnes & Noble store if they could use one of their New York locations for filming 
for You've Got Mail. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Barnes & Noble declined this kind offer to be presented as big corporate bastards in the midst of a Hollywood blockbuster. So in the end, for a branch of the Fox Books chain, which is what we get in the film, run by Tom Hanks's apparently evil but not really character, what they did was they used um, a, a real-life store that had just gone out of business, a Barney's store, as it were. I'm not particularly familiar with Barney's, but nonetheless, they redressed an existing store. And they did it in a very, very realistic way because bypassers, as they saw this shop coming together, were happy to inquire just when it was going to open. Across town, meanwhile, working in a bookstore as part of their preparation were Meg Ryan and Heather Burns. And they worked in a New York bookshop for a week, uh, getting to know the systems, getting to know the cash registers, getting to know how it all works, all as part of getting into the characters that they were about to play. Now, Nora Ephron, on all of the films that she directed, was very stringent on insisting on rehearsals for her cast. This isn't something that Hollywood movie executives particularly like a lot of the time because basically you're contracting the cast members for an extra week or two for material that won't end up on screen. But Ephron had certainly had the clout to be able to do so. This wasn't going to be a hugely expensive film either, so that also helped. But she did always make sure that rehearsal time was built into the budget of her pictures, not least because she wanted to test out the comedic elements, that it was all right writing a lot of this stuff down on paper, but would it work when her cast were, were firing the lines backwards and forwards? And so she put a lot of time into that. But she put a lot of time into an awful lot of details in her film. And so going back to that Vanity Fair piece, uh, associate producer Diane Dreyer is quoted extensively in it and shines a lot of light on Nora Ephron's process. As Dreyer said, Nora, um, all within her specific agenda, worked really closely with designers and costumers and just cared about everything. She cared about detail in a big, big way. And she was a woman who said, I mean, we sadly lost her, but she said to have had strong opinions, but wasn't nasty with it. And as Dreyer explained, one of the reasons that a lot of people in the industry talked about her as tough is Nora was a very responsible filmmaker. And as she added, I say that with tremendous respect. Now, part and parcel two of making this a New York story, well, production designer Dan Davis really he didn't want to shoot this on a soundstage. He didn't want even want to take it to a New York studio. He wanted to make this really location driven. And that's why they built the two bookstores they were using for the film on the streets of Manhattan. It certainly wasn't the easiest approach they could have gone for, but it felt more authentic to the film they were trying to make. Now, filming was underway in 1998. And again, going back to Diane Dreyer, she explained that Nora Ephron wanted a, a neighbourhood feel on the set of the film. So Dreyer explained she, Ephron was challenging the assistant directors because she wanted to repeat people in the background action. I mean, this was down to the granular level of the extras. So she wanted to recognise people on the street that you'd seen before. She didn't want just anybody and she didn't want them to be random. She wanted them to have a purpose and to walk past Meg Ryan when she's walking to work and then walk past her again when she's going home from work. And Laura Shula Donna explained more on this as well, that she explained, she added that Nora Ephron showed scenes at the beginning of the film of bread being dropped off outside little closed stores to make the audience feel like they were in a village, even though they were in a metropolis like New York. Now, Efron as well pointed more out on the DVD commentary for the film because there's an extra early on who's playing a florist right at the start of the movie who we see is pregnant. And Efron said we put a little pad in her tummy. And one of the things you'll see later in the movie is where Meg is buying flowers at that florist. There's a little sign in the window that says it's a girl. A tiny little detail that barely anyone would notice. Uh, the script was tight. Uh, but there was still room for ad-lib ad as well. Hanks uh, it, it has a talent for ad-libbing. Michael Palin duly came in and shot his scenes too. Um, but as the film went into post-production and went into test screening, I mean, Nora Ephron was not the kind of person who enjoyed losing key sequences in the film and, and, and losing moments from the film either. But also she was very tuned in to it had to be edited down, it had to be right. And there was this character of William Spungen who might Michael Palin was playing based on Thomas Pynchon 
and Palin's character in post-production got cut completely out of the film. Now, if you listen to Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast, he did a full interview with Michael Palin where he talks about that on that particular episode. That's really worth listening to as well. But Diane Dreher explained that Palin's character got completely cut out of the film, not because he wasn't funny, but, quote, maybe because he was a little too weird and not enough people knew who he was. And she added that the test preview screening process, even though most people hate it, and she didn't think Nora Ephron liked it that much, was something Ephron was paying very, very close attention to. And she was consistently trying to make the best movies she could make. And so things would disappear from the film, that she would home it, she would bring it down. Nothing massively unusual there, short as she felt the pain of it sometimes. And sometimes she just couldn't make moments in the film and, and from her script work in the final cut of the movie and just had to take them out. Now, in the end, by the time the film was completed and Warner Brothers was readying it for a Christmas 1998 release, the budget had gone up. It was coming in at $65 million, but a lot of that was on the, the above-the-line movie star talent that Nora Ephron had been very careful with Warner Brothers' money. But, I mean, it was clear this was going to be a, a very big studio release as well, and the budget grew accordingly. She arrived at a final cut, of the film um, that was coming in a minute shy of two hours as well and when the movie went it went before critics I mean it was widely expected to be one of the hits of the season which it was uh, in fact the soundtrack album too was one of the hits of the season the it, I mean the response to it was it, it's all right but it's not quite as good as Sleepless in Seattle that the that the charm of it was seeing these uh, th these actors Hanks and Ryan again in this kind of romantic comedy and the the reviews were drawing on the fact that the lead characters were appealing and and were interesting and were fun although some people really took against them as well and some I mean there's a lot of time when romantic comedies have been reviewed where it feels like reviewers are against even the form and the conventions of a romantic comedy but it's no secret that we we roughly know the beats that a film of this ilk is going to take but when it comes to when it comes to putting that in front of movie critics well it, i mean that's often seen as a, a as a criticism as if films such as this have to take radical left turns to justify their existence now i do want to put a shout out for a romantic comedy that's just come out here in the uk called rye lane and that is a romantic comedy that does take what uh, does take some uh, some real turns to it. But you've got Mail was um, I, I mean it knew what it was. Efron knew the film she wanted to make, and also it wasn't the first telling of this story. It wasn't shy about where its roots were, and the feeling was audiences were going to respond to it not for the first time a great deal better than the critical fraternity would. And so it opened that weekend, December the 18th to the 20th, 1998, Warner Brothers knowing it was likely to play right over Christmas as well. There was competition. It was opening uh, against The Prince of Egypt, the first hand-drawn animation from DreamWorks Animation. Also, uh, the, last, the previous week's number one was Star Trek Insurrection. There was Pixar's A Bug's Life. There was Jack Frost. What a film, crikey. Enemy of the State with Will Smith. There was a fair amount of competition, but You've Got Mail sailed into first place. $18.4 million opening weekend. Warner Brothers perfectly happy with that, knowing again that the, the, the business would keep coming. And tellingly, uh, the following week, Christmas, uh, You've Got Mail's weekend box office was just 1.8% down. A minuscule amount. It held that $18 million for a second weekend as well. Even as the competition came, along robin williams topped the chart with patch adams uh, taking 25 million julia roberts in stepmom 19 million but the audience just kept coming back to you've got mail and kept coming back and coming back it's third weekend another 14 million was still in the top three and it would take a while really for it to drop out i mean it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be out of the top 10 for until well into i don't think february before it finally fell now, the film, in total at the US box office, took $115 million. And then outside of the US, another $135 million. But also, this was a, this was a film that was going to take advantage of the, new, the, the newfangled DVD format, as it was then. That DVD had launched in the US uh, just a year or so before. And there were signs that it was finally going to be the, the film media that would take over from the long-running VHS format. 
As such, Warner Brothers was one of the early adopters and really put a lot of work into its early DVD releases. Look at its Disc of Contact, for instance, which was one of the first to have multiple commentary tracks and such like. And the disc release of You've Got Mail duly went to town. And it, it, even to this day, it's well worth picking up. And there's an awful lot of behind the scenes material on it. It's also worth noting as well that the film had a very famous uh, uh, website built to tie into the film, which finally went down only a few years ago but that website archived all of the emails sent between the lead characters in the movie too and proved to be really quite popular and live for 20 years after the film was released now the assumption was that once you've got mail had come on, come along uh, and had done its business that Nora Ephron Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan would find another project to work on together um, but it never happened and I mean tragically we lost Nora Ephron in 2012 at the age of 71 it just feels like incredibly young uh, really um, but she left behind this 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 collection of romantic comedies as well as a whole bunch of other writing and directing work. And Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail are, are just lauded as two of the most popular romantic comedies of the 1990s. And I mean, two of the three films in which we see Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks together. The other, of course, being Joe versus the Volcano, uh, a very different beast, that is, although not a bad film. And it is one worth checking out. You've got mail. I mean, the delight now would be if it was remade again, again given how, I mean, it's so quaint looking at it now. I mean, the, the, even the trailer for it is talking about Meg Ryan's excitement when she gets those magical words, you've got mail. I mean, the, the amount of spam that goes through most of our inboxes now, she'd just be sat there just like, just just saying you've got mail all day long, just watching the rubbish roll in. So it's, it's a bit of a slice of history as well as a popular romantic comedy as well. And also a tidy hit for a pair of movie stars who I would imagine at some point will work together again. But since you've got mail, well, they've just not found the project. And that brings me to the end of this latest episode of Film Stories. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for your time. If I've not bored you completely, you can find more from me on Twitter, just about. Well, I don't think Twitter's burnt down yet. I'm at Simon Brew. The entire Film Stories project is on Twitter as well. That's at Film Stories. You can find our website at filmstories.co.uk. We update that every weekday with movie news, reviews and features. You can also find out more about our live events on there by clicking on the live events tab if you go to store.filmstories.co.uk that's where you can find all of our print magazines for sale so we have film stories magazine um, of which the latest issue is on sale now leading with the uh, the british action movie polite society we also have film junior which is the world's only regular film print magazine for under 15s that's on sale too and we have a sneakers blu-ray available here in the uk too all that at store.filmstories.co.uk we're at facebook.com slash film stories online youtube.com slash film stories as well and the patreon is patreon.com slash simon brew but i think that's enough for now isn't it i think we've had a, a a couple of movies we've had a good movie waffle uh, i think i've of course gone on way too long and indulged myself too much it just leaves me to say thank you again for supporting this podcast thank you for listening i'm going to leave you in peace now i'm going to go and watch some films but i will be back soon with another bunch of film stories you all look after yourself take care bye bye